welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. So this week I am joined by Martin Goulston, and he is Chief Business Officer at Sensine Health, and that is the ethical clinical AI company. And Martin's here to discuss the significance of synthetic control arms, as these can significantly contribute to accelerating clinical development, and they help life science and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, improve clinical trial design and success rates, we'll talk about that, and specifically to overcome patient stratification challenges. So Martin, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast, how are you doing? Thanks James, I'm doing well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you sir. Uh, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Martin? I'm speaking to you from near Sutton Walden, just south of Cambridge in the UK. Excellent, the Golden Triangle, if you will. Um, yes, part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Martin, yeah, you're obviously here to talk about the company, talk about your background and yourself and all the cool stuff that, that Sensign is doing. It's a company that's certainly growing in presence and popularity. And obviously to get someone like you onto the C-suite, they must be doing something right. So we can kick off by talking about you and your background. So the way we kick these off is for you to tell your story. So by all means, uh, tell us uh, tell us everything. Okay. Uh, well, it's it's over thirty years of it, so it's <laughs> it's quite extensive. Um, so my original background was actually in genetics research at Nottingham University, and I believe we're both alumni of the same place. We so are. go Nottingham. <laughs> um, I, I was fortunate in my university career to um, work on DNA fingerprinting. Not long after it was discovered by Professor Sir Alec Jeffries at Leicester University. Oh, wow. So I actually That's worked cool. on the genetic fingerprinting of red kites uh, in Wales when they were endangered. And the point of the project was to work out whether or not they were endangered because of genetic inbreeding or whether or not they were being persecuted or you know, being poisoned, shot at, that kind of thing. And the work I did actually did show that genetically, despite a population crash, they were relatively diverse. So the hypothesis was they were being persecuted largely by farmers and not long after that we had the reintroduction from Holland from Dutch populations starting on the M40 M4 cor- M40 corridor and nowadays even in my garden we have several pairs wheeling around us wow. all day long so it's fantastic to see awesome. so whenever i see them it reminds me of my my undergraduate project which that's so that's so nice set my path that's such a that's such a good uh, that's such a good story because I suppose it's it's a, it's a privilege to have your uh, your undergraduate degree reminded in such a positive way I suppose throughout your life that's quite nice. Yeah, well, it's thanks to Professor James Parkin, who's I think he's definitely retired and may not even be with us anymore, but he saw potential in a very lazy and very much party focused and sport focused undergrad, and having that application having a project with a real life application was the thing that really sparked my interest in genetics research and science in general yeah so i was one of those people that needed to have that connection with the real world rather than just an esoteric scientific concept to get me going and he saw that and bless him gave me the opportunity above much better qualified undergraduates i i I would think in his lab 
What do you think he saw so, in you? So, out of interest. Um. Well, when I got my degree, I got a two-one, mm. and um, several of my peers were quite surprised at that. And one of them said to him, "How did Martin get a two-one?" And his reply was, "Martin is a lot cleverer than he looks." <laughs> which, <laughs> which I will probably take to the grave as as, <laughs> as the ultimate in damning with faint praise. <laughs> Oh, very nice. Very nice. So, so, beyond that degree then, and beyond that project, I mean, what did that lead to and, and you know, an established career in business, or extinguished uh, career in business? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, my when I left, I was, I was really interested in pursuing the science, and I applied for jobs in DNA fingerprinting, and I, I was lucky enough to get a, a, a job in my first startup company, uh, University Diagnostics in London, looking at DNA fingerprinting uh, as a service, mm. and I was one of the first sort of scientists hired. We didn't have the benefit of uh, the license to the Afric Sir Alec Jeffries probes that went to uh, Cellmark Diagnostics, mm. so we had to invent our own process using single lockers probes in batteries. And I worked on the um, some of the statistical mathematical analysis to actually derive significant enough probabilities of relatedness from using a battery of single lockers probes so we were comparable to the ceramic jeffries mini satellite sequences which you know you could run one probe on a family and have the the classic dna lands the um, ladders bands so i spent i spent about eight months locked in the basement at UCL Biosciences, uh, laboriously inputting manually using a camera on a, a stand, the positions of single lockers uh, bands to build a database of a thousand people uh, that I had derived. I hand um, extracted their DNA, digested it, uh, analyzed it using PPA 38 probes, built and run the gels and then measured the bands distance of the bands according to a, a reference a ladder reference and then used all of that information to work out that we could with five or six single lockers probes uh work out the relatedness of individuals or the unrelatedness of individuals wow that must be pretty so that was satisfying a from a technology perspective just thinking about like the difference now being, I suppose, how easy that and other processes are, that oh, yeah. I suppose it loses a lot of the connection or magic or, or something. I can, I can imagine going through a process as laborious and all the rest of it as that really connects you to what you're actually doing and how you're yes. actually then getting this result. It's almost like a you're seeing into the future doing that because you're feeling it. You're feeling like how difficult the process is. There's something there I, I, that's that's very different to how technology is right now, I guess, in a lot of these areas. Yeah, I mean, it felt more like an art form and it was more yeah, of an that's interesting. Than, than, than a process. And I wasn't really... You get some people that are very gifted in the laboratory environment. They, mm. they, their experiments always work. They don't melt their gels. Um, I was not one of those people. Mm. So ultimately, that's what led me out of the lab and into a more commercial career. But I loved 
seeing the DNA swirling in my Eppendorf tube at the end of the extraction process. And it was very satisfying that you got a decent sample and you could see the DNA strands because obviously they're like tiny, tiny strands. And obviously if you have enough of them, they, they interweave and they form a, a, a white milky rope. Wow. And I think that probably outside of undergraduate, probably even school experiments now, People don't see that anymore because it is automated. Most of what I did is now completely automated and high throughput, which is great. And it's 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 like where we are now with um, real world data at Sensine Health. It's that kind of explosion of technology, connectedness, having the, the computer power and the tools, the analytical tools to, to make sense of large amounts of data and information, which is crucial. And which has led to, in turn, the revolution in the human genome, which I was, you know, around for and saw wow. firsthand. Was actually in companies. One company I worked in had a high throughput proteomics process where we were mapping proteomically derived um, sequences onto the human genome backbone sequence that hadn't long been discovered, in order to have a much more experimentally validated uh, version of the of the gene sequences and where they mapped. And and those things are only possible through having access to the ability to manipulate and manage large amounts of data effectively. And and really, you know, ironically, my career has come full circle. So where I am now at Sensine Health is is that synthesis of having the ability to manage large volumes of data, make sense of it, and that's where the AI and ML comes in. Um, and the common data model that we employ, where you're getting disparate data sources, uh, highly fragmented, structured, unstructured data, and making sense of them, and turning that data into valuable insights for patients, for the pharmaceutical industry. And so my career, I feel at times, has come full circle, even though I was working in a, in a, in a dank basement lab in <laughs> London as a very poorly paid researcher. <laughs> Um, that's all that's awesome it, though um my my question is obviously you went from well you went at a very early stage to, to a startup right or startups and, and that environment is that yeah something that you've always then felt a, a connection to and and wanting to be part of is is there something in you that that wants to be innovating or part of that innovation and therefore also slightly masochistic and enjoying that chaos and that uncertainty and all the rest of it absolutely <laughs> I, I, nice. I, I describe myself as a moth to a flame um <laughs> my my uh yeah so i think i've always been drawn to novelty i've always been, been drawn to science but as per my undergraduate project really it's always got to be science with a practical application. Yes. And so I'm naturally drawn to things where I can see a strong practical application for that information, for that data. So in the case of Sensine, it's really applying that data to the benefit of patients ultimately. Mm. Um, and that that's always been a big draw. So I've been in some large corporates in my career, uh, notably mainly the large CRO sector. So Quintiles for five years, where I built and ran a consulting practice in Europe first and then went into corporate development for them where running M&A in Europe. And then Cineos Health most recently where I ran Capital Solutions, which was a new initiative. But again, I was working with 
early stage discovery based and startup companies to get investment into them to push them through into the commercialization and and running the services alongside but i've always been happiest and most alive when i've been working in startups for startups driving early growth in in early stage startups trying to realize the commercial and the 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 patient benefit potential of new technologies new new approaches Hmm. What do you That's think's sure. been what do you think's been the best career decision you've made in terms of finding out where your passion lies, what you enjoy most, ending up in a, in the job that you want? What do you think's been the key to that, and and you know a good decision you've made there, or indeed the best one? Uh, that's a yeah, that's that's a good one to consider because <laughs> I've made some ter- absolutely terrible career decisions. <laughs> well, let's talk about those even. <laughs> Uh, but I, in aggregate, uh, although at the time they feel terrible, they all build to where you are now. So, so what I would say to anybody from from an advice perspective, if you're starting out in your career now, there are no there are no bad entry points ultimately because if as long as you build and you use all of that experience and, and information in your career to the next stage to the next step, and inevitably as you get older and mature your perspective changes. I mean, you go through life changes where you, you maybe get married, maybe have children, that changes your perspective. Um, and what I have found is that, I mean, I've, I've had a very eclectic career in our industry. I've worked in clinical development as a, a clinical researcher, project manager. I've worked on the commercial side in four different um, exploratory discovery technology startups sort of helping them grow, helping to commercialize those early technologies and apply them into the clinical development, clinical uh, discovery, pro- the discovery process. And, and all of those experiences really have led me to where I am today. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to do the job I do today at Sensine Health, running all the commercial aspects of the business across really very diverse product sets, ranging from, you know, patient um prediction algorithms applied to healthcare systems through to the Sensite platform tool itself, which is a SaaS product, but it's also an analytical tool set window into the real world data sets that we've generated through the AIML process and the common data model. So I'm not able to do that job unless I've done the other things yeah one of the one of the departures i had in my career which many people told me was a big mistake and which um allegedly slowed my career progression was i did spend five years actually in the early part of my career as an executive search headhunter where um i joined a a very boutique practice called euromedica Mm. run by some ex great and goods, so people that run the Tagamet patents for GSK, people that were fairly senior in our industry, very experienced. And I was young Martin. <laughs> um, I was brought in because they needed fresh, fresh impetus, fresh blood. I was in my late 20s. I've been very successful up to that point in a clinical development career. And a lot of my friends who are in that space said, you're making a huge mistake. Why are you doing that? And to be honest, what it taught me, as well as building a fantastic 
very senior network in the industry is how to run a business so I was responsible for myself initially and then as as I got more experienced I built and ran my own team in another company so it taught me how to run a business and the business principles are the same managing people's the same I learned an awful lot about a very diverse range of technologies discovery technologies I worked with some very large companies like Novartis and Roche um, with some very senior people so it taught me how very senior people are successful in business how they operate and it also taught me that nice guys can come first That's you don't nice. have to be you know a hard-nosed hard-charging yeah. type a personality to succeed and be a senior person in our industry and have an impact so uh, it, it taught me an awful lot and whilst many people look at that and certainly when I left um, executive search and I was looking at, at commercial roles in discovery many people are saying well you've got no chance you've got no you know how, how can you apply that but I was successful in applying that and transferring that across and the skills are very transferable you need to be very resilient to mm. to have a career in executive search have a thick skin be very adaptable and you're relying on yourself you're selling yourself you don't have anything else to sell I mean headhunt firms although they work hard to uh, differentiate much as CROs do now the ultimate thing is you're selling yourself your knowledge your ability to engage with people quickly to empathize with them quickly and then on the other side of that really assess people very quickly mm. become I love a very that. good judge of character I, I love that because you've you've eloquently explained something there that I think is extremely important to people in their careers, which is where you use the term aggregation, that you are now a combination of every career decision you've made, good or bad, and each one of those you have learned something. I think that is a really important point because in health tech, it's we're early in health tech still. This space is still maturing any experience that you're bringing from different sectors, different jobs, different vantage points is extremely important, I think, because we're bringing that into a, into a young and growing industry. And I think anybody that has seen the world from multiple vantage points can be much better at things like sales, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand their pain points, and their problems definitely something like communication and marketing like absolutely again the ability to have seen the world in different vantage points to have experienced it to know what people's pain points are and things like that i think no matter what you have done in the past you will have learned something career-wise and i can absolutely see how you're bringing all of that stuff now to sensei um so tell me about your role at sensei what does what does your title mean what does a day in the life of look like uh, well, it's it's a good illustration of, of how my career has equipped me for a role this broad mm -hmm. with this many challenges and, and opportunities. So I currently, I'm building a team. I've got a team of about 11 now. And when I joined nine months ago, there were, there were none, including in the US. We're building a SaaS sales specific operation, which has its own requirements and it has its own metrics. It's much more measured, much more controlled. Again, ironically, data is everything in a SaaS sales process environment. 
But in parallel with that, I have teams that are working and engaging daily with NHS trusts, negotiating with them in a very sort of structured and painful process. Mm-hmm. And I have what I would classify SMEs in their own right who are engaging at a very senior level, at a strategic level with our pharmaceutical clients to, to discuss things like synthetic control arms, patient stratification opportunities, and helping them navigate their needs and their requirements with our capabilities. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly diverse role that calls for a lot of uh, intellectual nimbleness and uh, also an inter- a broad interface across our wider organization, uh, both in terms of our production suite for the products, our data sourcing strategy. So I work very closely with, with Nick Scott Ram here, who runs the, the data and the delivery side of the business. And so you need to have a very broad appreciation and understanding of all aspects of the business and how they interface and fit with what you're trying to achieve. And obviously I have an ultimate goal, commercial goal, which is revenues, but also I have the welfare of my teams at heart Mm. and the fact that we need to deliver uh, for our clients the insights that they need to drive drug discovery and development and drive Mm. new products ultimately to the patient. Awesome. And also, I think unlike unlike a lot of businesses, we're much closer to the patient and to the NHS. So we have developed, and our central plank has always been a very highly ethical stance with regards to the the, the use of patient data. So we we work with our trusts both here and in the US in close partnership to ensure that no patient data is ever uh, identifiable or leaves the premises and we also have what our founders called a double bottom model which is whereby we we invest uh, financially and intellectually into our trust partnerships to help them raise the bar in terms of their own IT capabilities so that the quality of data we receive is is the best it can be and is is formatted in a way that fits our common data model and enables us to apply our artificial intelligence, machine learning tools to, to get the best out of the data. That, that, also, bit's, re- that you... bit's really interesting. Sorry to jump in. That bit's really interesting yeah, yeah. because obviously helping to develop the infrastructure on that demand side is a, a, a massive enabler to so much technology and also just so much actual impact and value. And so to, in, to be investing anywhere, helping adoption and helping infrastructure on the demand side and by that i mean obviously the buyers the payers the users the people that have the demand um for the technology like i I think it it's such a it's such a good thing to be doing in its real basic terms and and also it's going to provide so much value for such a long time it's uh yeah it's it's a good place to be spending money let's put it that way i think anyway yeah and, and the other piece of this is that the, the trust in the UK um, actually get given an equity position in Sensign. So we're currently on AIM. Wow. And so in theory, they share in our success. So they get a direct relationship to the data. So by, by working with us to share the insights from the data we generate, mm. 
they are benefiting financially as well and ultimately that benefit passes directly to the patients that they care for so so not only are we working with industry to to analyze the data provide the insights to industry to help it it progress its its programs and therapeutic development for the benefit of patients but we're actually in parallel benefiting those same patients directly through supporting the trusts so there's nice incentives there across everybody then isn't there yeah it's a virtuous circle effectively and it's another reason why i was very keen to join sensine health actually so that the, there are a couple of good reasons why I joined. That was one, and the other is that I believe in the future companies that that have access to the data and not just any data, but the the depth and quality of the data we have access to, both in terms of its longitudinal nature, but also how well curated it is, how highly enriched it is, um, is going to be the future. You know, those companies will be the future. Absolutely. So. Practically speaking, then, for people that might not have uh, or might not know Sensine in a great amount of detail, what actually is the product? Or indeed, I know you face healthcare and life sciences. What are mm. the products? Well, if I deal with the healthcare first, so so we have a number of algorithms, both commercially in the market, but also in development, that track patient progress and in some cases predict patient outcomes. So we developed a SignCov algorithm which predicted at entry point into, into the um, A&E department whether the likely path of a patient so that they could, it could help the, the hospital predict their path and therefore manage their care potentially. We have our most successful um, algorithm app is is a gestational diabetes management tool which has been actively used or is being actively used across more than half the NHS trusts in the UK currently and has been in 40,000 patients hands Wow! and we believe has led to better outcomes in terms of patient births and control of gestational diabetes management in vulnerable p- patients, and that's that's very, you know, very, very encouraging. I mean, it's not a huge commercial money spinner for us, um, but I believe that the benefits that it gives to the patients far outweighs any any of that for me. Yeah, absolutely, um, and, it, and it will feed into the rest of the business as well, knowing that uh, you know, very trusted nhs logo you know knowing that those trusts are are trusting you um it is important for for doing business elsewhere right i i'm interested oh, it's though. essential yeah well yeah especially globally as well um i'm interested though in 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 that bit specifically you know half of nhs trust in the uk that's a lot that's impressive scale you know forty thousand patients but more impressive to me is, is actually those deals with trusts that is not that is not easy to do that is very uh very impressive certainly to have done that many deals i mean have you been party to any of those conversations in in terms of when that happened and how that happened and any insights to glean from how you've managed to achieve that well it's an ongoing process so we have a we have a small dedicated sales team who interface with the trusts all Mm. the time and it is a process now so obviously initially 
the first few are always going to be harder. But it's around building the um, the use case, the validation of the of the app, and how useful it is in terms of patient outcome. And once you have that data and it's compelling enough, then uh, the argument for the maternity units to use it is is a relatively easy one to make. It's then it's really the challenge is navigating hospital procurement systems. NHS trust procurement systems is the main challenge and the process involved in that. Mm. But the actual sort of app and the, the the health economic sort of argument for its use are pretty well established. So once you have that, that's that's that means that most maternity units that hear about it are very interested to work with us on that. Mm. I imagine that reaches a critical mass as well when it becomes uh, it, it becomes less popular to, to not have it than have it, or it becomes more popular to have it than not have it, where you know everyone else has got it, I need it kind of thing. I imagine there's a bit of FOMO yeah. going on. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, but cool. but what, the main the main thrust of our business commercially is is obviously with the pharmaceutical sector, and this is the life science side, right? The life science side, and that's clearly the side that I'm have most sort of background and experience of and with. And and the Sensite tool that we talked about earlier, the platform that we launched in September this year, is really a, a culmination of of efforts in the past. So what I would call professional services agreements with large pharma that we've successfully prosecuted before. So people like Bayer, Roche, Alexion, that we've worked with on projects that, that in our earlier days were much more manually curated. So the data is much more manually curated, took a bit longer to do in honesty. But no, learning from those experiences and picking up those hard yards has gone into the development of the Sensite platform. And the Sensite platform is really a, a response to our clients' wishes, needs, uh, and desires in terms of better access to to the data, more rapid access, and and building an automated tool set that, that enables them to, to conduct very useful experiments with the data or the insights from the aggregated anonymized data. And those include things like feasibility of synthetic control arms, patient stratification, and the ability to compare real-world data, real-world evidence from actual patients directly. And that's very powerful for a pharmaceutical company. So if you've got a product on the market and you want to know how does your product compare in reality, in its setting, in its care setting, with its competitor set, that's incredibly powerful data, incredibly Mm. powerful um information for you yeah and obviously the fact that it's real world data gives it well you tell me what is the value of of it being real world data well when you develop drugs through the clinical research process you're developing them in a very artificial environment so the, the clinical trials themselves have very precise inclusion exclusion criteria for the patients and the patients are are highly managed through a clinical trials process and the clinical trials themselves are designed up front to 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 try to get to a certain endpoint primary endpoint goal for the patients which prove that the medicine is either better than its competitors or is a major um, advance against an unmet medical need 
obviously in a traditional healthcare setting, it's really around taking the patients one by one as they come in, assessing their specific needs, and then trying to, to get them well. So inevitably, that's going to be different than the clinical trial setting where the drugs were developed. And this is why sometimes you see drugs fail once they get to market, having passed the clinical research process, because you find either in a very large population there are unforeseen rare strategic, uh, serious adverse events that are quite catastrophic in relation to the risk-benefit profile of the drug and means it needs to be withdrawn. Or, on the positive side, you find different uses for the drug in related conditions that the doctors find, and that's called off-label use. And in uh, some instances... that's interesting. I hadn't appreciated how off-label use came to the fore. Yeah. So, so being able to track things like that in large-scale patient populations with a tool that gives you that, that data literally at your fingertips is incredibly powerful, potentially. Absolutely. Um, and forgive my ignorance here, but you, you mentioned synthetic control arms. What does that mean? Yeah. And how are they involved in helping in clinical trials? Yeah, so synthetic control arms are a relatively, still a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, there have been about six or maybe seven drugs approved with a synthetic control arm by the FDA. And synthetic control arms are also known as historic control trials. And basically what they are is you're building a, a synthetic patient population for your clinical trial data submission that have not been involved actively in your clinical trial. I see. But you can apply the clinical trial inclusion exclusion criteria to their data to see if they would pass into your clinical trial and then you are tracking their outcome in parallel with your clinical trial cohort, your, your treated cohort. The applications of this have been clarified by the FDA recently. So they're especially useful with rare or ultra rare patient populations where it's hard to get enough patients to run the trial and it's also, also extremely likely to be unethical to put them into a trial where you're not treating them with a, a, a novel therapeutic active agent. And also in some cancers as well, some oncology trials. But I think that we're going to see a, a broadening of the application of synthetic control arms because of the, as I said before, this explosion in data and the ability to, to manipulate and and manage that data in a way that enables you to interrogate it at the depth you need to apply inclusion exclusion criteria from a clinical trial into a patient population. Now there are still very few companies out there that have successfully done this in this way and the reason for that is that you do need access to incredibly detailed longitudinal highly curated data sets in order to prosecute that. So in our hands, we, we're, we have actually run a synthetic control arm trial. In our hands, you start with a population of thousands of patients and you end up very rapidly narrowing that down to maybe 100 or 200 yeah. because of the inclusion-exclusion criteria. But you need to have access to the full data on that patient, the full patient journey, if you will, 
to be able to apply all those inclusion and exclusion criteria to the satisfaction of the farmer sponsor and the regulator ultimately. So it's awesome. it's it, there aren't many companies that have that access to depth and quality of data, and then the ability to manipulate that data to to work with the anonymized data sets in the way that we can. Yeah, and that's really the power and the value in the Sensite platform as a feasibility tool for synthetic controls because it's that window into that data world that we've built. Uh, I mean, we can also obviously work directly with pharma on a on a more bespoke basis. And I call that more of a data concierge model where we work side by side with the, the pharmaceutical sponsor to really build out the synthetic control arm to a regulatory grade to, mm. to the point at which it could be used potentially in a submission. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you consider the amount of money involved in clinical trials and the requirement to reduce sorry increase efficiency by even the smallest amounts and what that can actually lead to clearly there's a lot of room for um for innovations like this you also mentioned that it supports in patient stratification how does it do that and you know is that a, a big pain point too in this process so patient stratification is kind of a uh a related area to synthetic control arms, but it, it, it's very commonly used when you're trying to work out what's the best patient population for your trial. Yep. So we, we with our data sets, we can apply clustering algorithms to look for these differences in patient response or patient groups within a, an indication or a specific disease area. And therefore that enables the pharmaceutical company to really target the best patient population for their trial design. So it's really, it fits more into protocol design, uh, streamlining, inclusion, exclusion criteria, pressure testing, and ultimately um, picking the right patient population for your trial. In both cases of synthetic control arms and patient strats, it does give the pharmaceutical industry the potential to save time and money in the clinical trial process and in the case of patient stratification it also hits that other key industry requirement which is reduction of attrition so the attrition in clinical trials is a real problem so if you can improve the probability of success even by a few basis points in a clinical trial setting that's an enormous benefit particularly if you enlarge that to a portfolio effect Mm. but but what what I like personally about this, what 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 really uh, resonates for me in the synthetic control arm process is that it also reduces patient burden. So you're not having patients needlessly go into trials or or try to get patients to to go into a trial where there isn't a treatment option for them in the trial. So I think that for me is is one of the the best sort of side effects, if you will, or yeah, of the course. application. Off-label use. Um, so, where does this lead then, Martin? In t- you know, a few years down the line, or many years down the line, with Sen- with Sensign and what you guys are up to on both the healthcare side and the life sciences side, what's the what's the goal here? What what does this look like in a? I was going to say perfect world. There's no such thing, but in a world where this technology has been allowed to flourish. What does it mean for ultimately patient care? Um, I would say, so So, looking at our 
trajectory in our journey for the Sensite platform. I mean, we're hoping to add up to 100 million patients of data into the platform by 2024. We're currently at 4 million and we'll have 10 million patients worth of data in there by January across wow. mostly oncology, cardiovascular, uh, renal data sets. Wow. And the platform is in its early stages. We launched in September. The, the early tools for the platform are the ones I've talked about, but there is the potential to add more. So there's a potential to add patient recruitment, patient registry development, pro prospective registry development, um, image analysis, automated resist analysis in cancers where you're looking for image-related biomarker development, with, with the addition of genomic data into the platform, matched genomic data. So you've got genomic, phenotypic from the EHR, plus image data, which I call the holy trinity of data. Yeah, wow. You have the potential to apply it into drug discovery to, to validate novel targets, look for novel target associations. So I think the future of the platform is, is, is um, it's in its early stages, really, and I think the sky is the limit. I think the platform could be a, an incredibly valuable tool across the entire drug discovery, development, commercialization spectrum. I think that is the interesting thing here and the exciting thing here, which is that clearly what you're building has some clear values now, but who knows what values will become clear in the future? There's lots mm. of different ways that this data can be applied. There's clearly new angles for it with phenotype and image and whatever the next things are that, that come up, whatever biomarkers you'll be adding in or digital biomarkers you'll be adding in and how all of that plays together. And it seems that a company like Sunshine being at the front of that, leading from the front, fulfills that thing that we talked about right about the start, which is you know your, your need for the innovation the need for chaos, the need for uncertainty, and to be sort of plotting a path through that. It must be uh, it must be quite rewarding for you now to be in the position that you're in and seeing this from the front. It is really rewarding, and and you know we don't know everything. I'm I'm really excited yeah. about the journey we're going to take with our customers on this. So I I imagine that our customers are going to be able to. I would really hope would have. A, a very definite hand in the future development of novel tools on the platform. And, and would well, this to. is what's nice about the model as well, actually, because because of what you're doing on the healthcare side and the structure of those deals as well, because we exist in a value-based system, you know, single-payer value-based system, ultimately, particularly on that side, you are always going to be guided by the value. And at the end of the day, you are always going to be doing the best thing ultimately for patient care because that's how the system's incentivized. And so, again, that is actually what's quite nice is that the more data that you collect and the more we go into the future, the more biomarkers and whatever it is, actually, in order to you know stay alive as a business, you're going to follow the value. And ultimately, that is in patient care. And I think... You know, there's a lot of conversations about about data and commercial agreements of data and all this sort of stuff. But where the incentives are right and where companies are focused on the value, that is where that value is going to be realized. And to be in a company that's doing that 
can be extremely rewarding, like where you're at now. Well, Martin, it's been a pleasure having you on and thank you so much for coming on. I imagine lots of different people want to get in touch with you, whether to talk about genetics or to talk about uh, your UCL lab work or to talk indeed about Sensign. So for those people that want to get in touch with you or to learn more about Sensign, uh, how do they go about doing those things? Uh, I'd be very happy to speak to, to folks. Um, you can reach me on martin.goldstone at sensignhealth.com very easily. Awesome. And we'll put that and the link to the Sentine website in the description of this episode. So, Martin, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. James, thank you too. I've really enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.